welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. So again, the title of our message is, Why We Practice Communion. My, one of my friends, um, uh, maybe a few months ago when the uh, COVID stay-at-home orders began, especially in, in California, he sent me a newspaper comic called F-. It's, it's kind of a funny single-frame comic. And this one had a, a man sitting on the couch, and he was talking to his wife or something, and he says, I miss, the, I miss her. I remember that when the times were certain, because of the, you know, the phrase that's continually now in every single commercial, like it's like a part of company marketing policy now. Every single phrase that goes out in a commercial or in an email, it always prefaces with, in these uncertain times. And usually when someone starts with a phrase like that, they're trying to sell you something because they want to make you a, consume, a consumer of their goods or of their services. In these uncertain times, you need fast food. Or in these uncertain times, um, you need uh, to... Remember that we're here for you as, a, as an important uh, concierge service or something like that. It's, they're trying to reflect on the fact that, yes, these are uncertain times. These are unstable crises. But here is some comfort in that area. Well, where do Christians find comfort in, quote-unquote, uncertain times? I mean, the, the, the Sunday school answer we would jump at is to say, well, we can't find comfort in God. We find comfort in prayer and in Bible study. But how many Christians actually practice that uh, sort of belief? I saw a poll uh, very recently that was asking um, people what they're doing in this time of lockdown and how they're reacting to this. And it, most, of, most of the data shows that people are simply consuming more digital content meaning Netflix and, and other streaming services, and they're just letting the YouTube um, next video countdown just continue on and watching videos. What they aren't doing necessarily, only a few of them reported having read the Bible or prayed more than that. And no, this isn't going to be a diatribe of you need to read the Bible more, but it's actually rather um, it, it, a better way to understand the fact that we are, as people, we are consumers. We are consumers of goods, we are consumers of ideas, and we are and should be consumers, as Christians, we should be consumers of Scripture. Well, we're going to um, approach an aspect of the Christian life, a practice of the Christian life, I should say, that has to do with consumption, and that is communion or the Lord's Supper. And in this day and age, it's kind of strange for us to figure out what to do with the fact that 2,000 years ago, our Lord Jesus Christ gave instruction to the disciples, to, and He said, eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we're supposed to obey that today in, by extension. Well, we're going to discuss why the church practices communion. But the short answer, if you want a Notes version of it, it's that simply because we practice communion because Jesus Himself instituted it. I mean, that's basically in a summary. We practice communion in obedience to Jesus, and that should make us want to practice communion. But of course, we should understand what it means to us when we partake of the wafer and the grape juice, in, in, in our case, as we are um, 
often want to do. Because I didn't know for the longest time necessarily the full meaning of communion. I knew that we did it. I knew that churches did it every once in a while. Um, And we, we say it's a memory of Christ. But what exactly is the full meaning of it? And why are we given to it? Well, the truth is, communion, of course, was given to us by our Lord really for our good. And it's full of spiritual riches that we shouldn't miss out on. And if we're missing out on understanding what communion means, we're really missing out on a lot of the Christian life. So, of course, the subject and the aspect of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Roman Catholic Church, it's often called, I think, the the Eucharist. There's been a lot of um, ink in books debating over the meaning of this, and most of it's usually a controversy of how it's being administered um, in the the, um, Anglican Church. It was kind of controversial over several hundred years of what do we do with the wafer? Do we kneel with the wafer and things like that? And it's always seeming to have been, uh, uh, it, it, let me rephrase that, it, for a while it seems to have been very controversial, even in the first century. Because Paul the Apostle took up an issue that was going on in, with the uh, Corinthian church who, who were practicing communion, and he was saying, the way you guys are practicing, it's not even communion. It's not even the Lord's Supper, the way you are practicing it. And so we might think to ourselves, well, with all this controversy, is, is it worth fighting through the controversy, trying to get to a better understanding of communion? Well, I think the answer is yes, because Jesus told us to. So we should, of course, as Christians, figure out what it means and, and how exactly to practice it. But to be honest, um, our practice of it really comes down to our doctrine of it. So let's go ahead and read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where I told you to turn earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. We're going to read um, a passage of about uh, just less than 20 verses, and then we'll kind of unpack that, and that'll kind of be the kind of basis of our message today. In verse 17, Paul writes, Put in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who may be genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eat, 
If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then Paul closes with, about the other things, I will give direction when I come. And it's kind of just a note to the Corinthian church. So, out of all of this, Paul points out their problem. And he actually points out the fact that there are divisions in the church. Now, of course, divisions in the church is a pretty bad thing. Big schisms and people fighting. But in this case, Paul says... Well, there actually must be divisions. The division is actually kind of good because there are those of you who actually are genuine and those of you who are not. And it was partly having to do with our practice of the Lord's Supper or what we call communion as well. Paul indicates that their issue was twofold, really. It was doctrinal and therefore it was practical. In other words, they believed the wrong things about communion and therefore, they acted wrongly in practicing communion. And in truth, we need to believe rightly about what communion is, if only as a check for the many manifold errors that are in the church about communion. And the major way we stray away from the correct understanding, the scriptural understanding of communion, is when we divorce it from the preaching of the Word of God. When we divorce the act of the grape juice and the wafer, for instance, without the Word of God, then we're actually straying from God's original plan for communion. Which is to say that the elements themselves are not some kind of magic thing. It's not something I, I take with me that, you know, I'll, I'll keep it in my car in case I need some extra boost of like spiritual seasoning or something like that. The communion elements itself really don't do nothing for us outside of the preaching of the Word of God in accompaniment. And so, Paul does this to the Corinthians. He, he takes their problem of communion and he says, let's go all the way back to when communion was first instituted. Because it was a practice that was given to the disciples by Jesus Himself. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 20. Um, 6 through 30. I'm going to turn there myself if you want to accompany me there. Matthew 26, verse 26. This is the, if your Bible has a chapter heading, it's the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus was going to pray and subsequently be betrayed and then crucified. And so right here we get the very first instance of communion when, when Jesus founded the practice. And what does Jesus say that it does? Well, it does two things. It seals the covenant, number one, 
And it represents the atonement. Jesus says in verse 28 right there, He says, this is the, My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, for righteous, or for the forgiveness of sins. So it's a covenant and it's for and it represents the atonement. So let's unpack this a little bit. Let's unpack this particular event because it's very important to understand the time in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He didn't just, it didn't just pop into his mind and say, I, this is a good idea, we should do this. But it was actually the context of this passage of Scripture is extremely important. Because the original occasion for Christ's feasting with the disciples was the Passover. As you may already know, the Passover, as recorded in Exodus 12, was instituted the night that God delivered the Israelites out of slavery um, to Egypt. And during the Passover, I should say before the Passover, they were instructed by God to take and kill a lamb without blemish, brushing the doorposts with its blood, and they went inside and they ate bitter herbs and unleavened bread while the angel of death was going around making judgments and killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. But whenever the angel of death saw the blood on the doorpost of uh, a Jewish house, it would continue to move on. It would pass by. And that's, it would pass over. That's why it's called Passover. And so, with this backdrop of Passover, Jesus took, takes the opportunity during this meal, or I should say almost after the meal, it seems as they were winding down their meal, and he gives the disciples a completely new practice. It actually was a completely new covenant in his own blood. They were the beneficiaries, and by extension, we in the church today are the beneficiaries of this new covenant of grace, which was built in Christ's name, in Christ's blood which was to wash away all of our sins. Hebrews chapter uh, 9, verse 22, tells us the importance of blood. We know the blood of the Lamb, and we know Christ's blood, but what exactly is so important about blood? Well, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, to start with, we read, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. We cannot flippantly say, oh, you know, forgiveness is just, you know, between me and, a, and another person, you know, if I forgive them, no blood has to actually be shed. But for God's ultimate moral law, God who is the moral arbiter and the moral judge, cannot let a sin go by without being punished. And so blood has to be spilled for that. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. The costliness of sin is seen in the ugliness of the sacrifice. John chapter uh, 1, verse 29, um, tells us the, that one of the first times John the Baptist saw Jesus walking for the first time, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist saw correctly what Christ was came, coming to earth to do, and that was to give his life to spill his own blood for the atonement and the sacrifice and the forgiveness of the sins of his people. The spilling of blood represents the ugliness of sin and the costliness of peace with God. And so this supper which Jesus instituted was meant to memorialize Christ's sacrifice for sins. The one-time event we call in a theological term the atonement. The once and for all final atonement of sins. 
The author of Hebrews also explains um, the kind of theology behind the sacrifice in Hebrews chapter uh, 9, verses 24, I think through 26. Um, the author writes, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. So he's referring to the Old Te- Temple uh, sacrifices of the Old Testament. He's saying, Christ didn't enter into the Old Testament temple. Christ has entered into heaven itself. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor... Or, n- uh, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does the atonement mean to the believer? The Christ's atonement means for those who have placed their faith in Him that they have complete forgiveness of sins. Every sin they've ever committed. Every wrong they've ever done. Every sin they've committed in their heart. Every lie they've ever told. Every ounce of immorality they've, they've experienced in their, their lives. Those things are forgiven. Isn't that incredible? All Everything past, present, and future. And not only that, they have perfect peace with God. That's what the atonement means for the believer. Perfect peace and harmony with God. Not, you know, we're starting these, Christ came to start these peace talks with God, if you will. Christ came to start something that we would have to finish on our own. You know, it, it's not like the, the peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel where they say, you know, it's a normalization of relations. Christ didn't come and die so you can have a normalization of relations with God. No, Christ came to give you perfect peace with God so that you are standing before God in perfect righteousness because Christ has given you His righteousness and washed away your very sins with His blood. That's what the atonement means. And so we should understand by now the Lord's Supper or communion is no mere meal. It's beyond the the literalness of the meal, though the literalness does help as we will see. So Jesus is not saying this is just some normal meal, but he's also not saying this is his literal body and blood. The Roman Catholic view of, of the Mass is that Christ's uh, or the, the wine and the bread actually turn into his blood and his body. They call that transubstantiation, where Christ is literally being re-sacrificed every time the Mass is performed. Well, the author of Hebrews completely refutes that idea because Christ came to earth and was sacrificed once for all time. But also, we should understand that it's, it's simply, it's not just any kind of feast. We, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'll, if you'll turn back with me, um, Paul notes, first of all, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper after supper, so it wasn't, you know, a, a meal in itself. It wasn't supposed to fill the body, because Paul says, even towards the end of the, the chapter, if, if, if you... Um, if you're hungry, just go home and eat. It, this is not to fill up your belly... This is rather a spiritual feast in which believers are invited to come and consume the benefits, the spiritual benefits of Jesus' sacrifice. And you're like, okay, Jared, I'm with you so far. I'm tracking with you right now. But why 
are we talking about eating in particular? Why is eating so important? Why can't we just have, you know, five minutes of silence? If Christ wanted us to remember, why didn't he maybe put a memorial up or something like that? Or put a little plaque somewhere? Why eating? Well, Jesus talks very explicitly about the importance of eating and eating him, if you will. In John chapter 6, verses 51 through 53, Jesus had just performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. He had a great crowd following him because of that. It was a very popular miracle. As you can guess, it was a free food, essentially. And Jesus uses this opportunity and this audience to, to say, to tell them, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give um, for the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus is talking not literally here, but spiritually. And he's relating our desperate need for forgiveness and for eternal life. He's relating it to a hunger. You know, in 21st century America, we don't experience hunger too much unless what we call, you know, not eating for four hours. In my case, you know, kind of slight weakness, hunger. Maybe we skipped a, a meal. But in, in many countries, they experience great hunger. And if they have a famine, it's very costly to them. And that all just goes to show that we're very arrogant about what we can do and what we can achieve, but our bodies are frail and they need food. And that indicates really our, our desperate need in, in a spiritual sense. Jesus Himself is saying, I am your food. You cannot live without Me. We cannot live one more second without Christ. Jesus fulfills that spiritual need. And that, that leads us to really focus on what Christianity is trying to address? What, what problem is it trying to fix? Because often Christianity is, is, is sold or marketed as come to Jesus and you will, He will fix your problems. Or come to Jesus and you'll get a new house and you'll get that promotion at your job. But no. Christ is saying the important part is come to Me and I will heal your sins. I will forgive your true spiritual need. The problem is not that we are unhappy or we feel unfulfilled or we have an unspectacular life and Christ comes in to make it better. But the fact is that we're dying and we're, we're, we're basically dead and we need Christ's spiritual bread to live. So what... We, we understand now a little bit more about communion, but what exactly happens during the event? What exactly happens during communion? We know that Christ is present with the church at all times. He, he promised that I will always be with you. Whenever the church is gathered together, I will be with you. But in which way is Christ, is He with us even more when we participate and a time of communion. Well, He's with us um, in two ways in, in communion. First of all, we remember Christ in faith. He's with us in that way. And also, we proclaim the Lord's death. So let's look at, first of all, remembering Christ in faith. When Jesus gave the instructions to His disciples, He said, do this in remembrance of Me. 
Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly as a church how often to practice communion. It does tell us that when we do, it's always in memory of Jesus and what He did. It's not just simply one way to show unity with one another. It's not simply to um, have a good time or something like that. No, it's Jesus saying, remember me and remember my death. It's a memorial as we consider what Christ did for us. So, of course, we look at the quotation that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As I mentioned, you know, we have very many ways to memorialize things. Of course, we have holidays and we have, we have statues. We have museums. You know, we even name overpasses and freeways after people. We name um, states after people. And if, if a memory is particularly good, they'll, they'll immortalize it in a movie or a film or something like that. And we even have those films, um, like I'm thinking of like war films or things like that, that are hard to watch. You might say, oh, that, was, that film was hard to watch. Well, why do we put ourselves through that kind of torture? Well, because we understand the significance of remembering very brutal events. Well, Jesus is kind of saying this event causes us to causes you to remember the brutality of my death and the costliness of forgiveness. When we come to the communion table, when we look at the, the fact that the juice reminds us of Christ's blood that was shed for us, it reminds us, the wafer reminds us of His body that was broken. Sometimes it's very hard to swallow in, in, in figuratively or, or literally because we understand the great cost at which Christ suffered for us. But of course, it's worth it. It's worth it. But the second way in which Christ is among us is our proclamation of Christ's death. The church that, the Christ that Jesus gave himself to, gave the church to represent is a Christ that's crucified. That's the way in which Jesus wants himself proclaimed, is himself crucified, because that's where the power of the gospel is. And therefore, in, in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, we read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the church not only remembers Christ in this time of communion, he, we also proclaim his death, because that's where the power is. That's where the gospel message is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, verses 22 and 24, just a few chapters back in your Bibles, Paul says this about the power of the Gospel message. And where exactly is the power at? Well, he says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But though to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross... The death of Christ is the distinctive power of the church. We might ask, what does Christianity offer me? Of all the religions, how can I best benefit from Christianity? In which case, we would point to a practice like communion. Because it reminds us of the, the great gift that Jesus gives to you. This is how you benefit greatly from communion. And it's more than any other religion or belief system or philosophy can offer because it actually promises eternal life. It promises forgiveness of guilt. It promises to wash away your sins. 
This is what we should be focusing on when we preach the gospel, when we partake in communion. Um, the theologian, the 18th century theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards focuses on this aspect of communion when he says, he, he says this, if Christ was represented among us as teaching divine doctrines, telling us our duty, telling us his Father's will, therein he would be represented as being among us in a very solemn matter. But how much more when he is represented as dying among us, when he is set forth as lifted up on a cross and tormented to death in our sight, and all we standing round to see it, to see the blood trickle from his wounds till he dies. What is Jonathan Edwards saying? He's saying, well, if we remember Jesus primarily as a great teacher, of course, that would be respectable. But we don't remember him simply as that. We remember him as a dying Savior. Jesus is among us powerfully in communion. Christ is proclaimed greatly when we remember the broken body and the spilled blood. So we understand a little bit more about the theology, the teaching of communion, what's going on when we take it. But how do exactly do we properly practice it? This is the part where people fight over and they, and they gripe over. And so much that some churches either say, we're not going to do communion, or we'll maybe do it maybe every once in a, in a while. Well, how do we practice it exactly? Well, Paul gives some instructions in um, second, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that we'll walk through a little bit. But they kind of fall into two general categories. There's the corporate aspect and there's the personal aspect. The, the corporate aspect involves the whole body of Christ and what they do to participate in this practice. And so under that, Paul makes clear that communion happens when we gather together. Notice in verse 17 of chapter 11, says, when you come together. In verse 20 of chapter 11, he also says, when you come together. So the assumption here is that communion happens when the church is gathered together. It's kind of a prerequisite. Well, the church needs to be together, which is why for our streaming service, we're not going to have a time of communion. We're not going to participate because we're not together. You and I, we're not in the same room together. And so that's why we had it at our in-person service. We were able to share it like that. Because that's the prerequisite that we see in Scripture that we need to gather together in this way in order to participate in communion. But also, Paul's instruction right here uh, involves not only gathering together, but really waiting for one another. In verse 33, he makes this point to say, uh, verse 33 says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. It's not like when a friend's late to a dinner party and you just say, well, we'll just order without him. So Paul is saying this is too important. The whole church needs to be together for this. Because what was going on with, with the issue with how the Corinthian church was practicing communion, Paul was saying that one person eats over here, this other person gets drunk. There's this weird hierarchy of who gets to go first and who doesn't even get to participate in communion at all. So Paul says, in as much as possible, come together and collect it. And that's why when we practice communion, we kind of distribute the elements, we all pick up the elements, and then we pray, and then we all partake of the, the bread and the juice. So, all to say that, of course, we cannot have communion over the internet, but it's an important and essential part of the in-person meeting of church. Weird that I have to qualify that. But... It all goes to say that 
for church to stream church, we kind of understand that that's not really church. It's like, you know, church with a, church with a limp very much. And that something really d- distinctive happens when the church does gather together. So here's just one more plug to come to our 7.30 a.m. in-person service, which is outdoors, socially distanced, and very, very safe. So those are the corporate aspects of communion, that we wait, gather together, we wait for one another. But then there's the personal aspect of communion, which... Frankly, I as a Christian need a lot of help on. As, as a young believer, I, I did not understand the significance of a lot of what was going on in communion. How should I feel? What should I do? Well, Paul um, gives us a little bit of encouragement and instruction in that area. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, he says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. And then he goes on and says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So he kind of has some very harsh things to say about people examining themselves. So first of all, let's examine ourselves. Communion is an act of worship. And as such, we should remember that For worship, our heart should be in the right place. God is simply not looking on outward um, actions, but inward motivations and affections. And also, we should, as we examine ourselves, we should not um, feel unworthy or whatever as believers to take communion. I have struggled with this quite a bit where I feel, you know, like I feel like I shouldn't take communion because, you know, maybe I've, I've sinned or, or just something bad I've done. I don't feel worthy to do this. Well, Christ has told us to obey him in practicing communion as much as possible. So we should have the freedom to freely practice it. But Paul does give a warning which we should heed. And the warning seems to be this. Examine yourself. See whether, first of all, whether you're a believer. Whether you're identifying yourself with believers and you are simply lying about that. So for all Christians, or or for everyone who's considering communion, they need to ask themselves, am I really a Christian? Each and every one of us should ask ourselves, have I really put my faith in Christ? We cannot afford to act hypocritically. Because we will numb ourselves, we will numb ourselves to the things of God, and we will inform others that we're, oh, this guy's a Christian when we really aren't. We cannot pretend to be a, Christians by, a Christian by taking on the trappings of this practice. Because God will have an answer for us, and God will find out. Did you know at the very first institution of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus himself was present, there were actually unworthy participants? or I should say at least one unworthy participant, Judas Iscariot was at the very table at which Jesus broke bread. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 21, we read that Jesus says, well, I'm sharing this, this with you, and yet one of you is about to betray me. And that was Judas Iscariot. And he ended up being literally guilty of the body of the Lord because he's the one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and therefore was, was crucified. And so Judas was judged by God for that. And so we have to take these things seriously, um, especially as, um, not only just as the idea of whether we're a believer or not, but even as, as Christians, that, hey, we should 
remember, do our best to remember Christ and take communion in faith and not be distracted or, or anything else like this. Because Paul does mention a specific judgment that's for believers. He says in verse 30, this is why, if you're taking communion in an unworthy manner, and he seems to be addressing believers, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord. This, this is a pretty significant judgment. God, Paul is saying, some of you have died because you're taking this in a flippant manner. And we think, well, what, what is the application for us today? Well, I think, frankly, I mean, Paul had divine revelation from God, so he knew this for sure. I don't think I, we can look at someone who's died after uh, an hour or five minutes after taking communion and say, well, he took it in a worthy manner, and God, therefore God killed him. We can't make that judgment, but it should just inform us that, hey, we should remember that this is an important thing. This is a very important thing. And remember, of course, that we can help each other and assist each other to remember that we're really uh, remembering Christ, and we can nudge each other and just talk about the things of God in this time. But I've heard a lot of people ask, how should I feel in communion? And I've heard people you know, kind of discuss that because it's, it's a good thing, right? I mean, it's, it's a good thing because Jesus told us to do it. And yet, should I feel happy? Should I feel sad? Should I feel morose? Should I feel sanguine? Like, what exactly should be my feeling about this? Well, the theologian John Owen kind of gives us good advice on how... Uh, what our disposition should be during this special time. He gives us three words kind of to remember, and it's very, uh, I found this very helpful, and I think you will too. He gives us recognition, humiliation, and thankfulness. And his point was that, hey, we need to recognize who Christ is, what he's done, and the cost of the, his very death, the fact that he spilled his blood and he had his body broken for us. But secondly, we should be humbled in which we see that and we realize I'm the reason because of my sins, I'm the reason that Christ died. But we shouldn't leave ourselves there. We should move on to thankfulness and think, well, this is, this is just wonderful because by the grace of God, I am a changed person and my sins have been forgiven. So recognition, humiliation, and thankfulness. That's a good way to approach communion. So, to understand the, the whole of communion, what, what really should we take away? What is the heart of communion? Because I don't want uh, a whole message and a sermon on the idea of communion to, to, weigh, feel, to make you feel like you're being weighed down with a bunch of rules and things to remember. Oh, okay, what are the three words that Jared told me to say? I don't want you to be weighed down. But rather, I want you to be freed up, if you're a Christian, to freely take a hold of a great memorial and use it to your spiritual benefit to remember Christ when you practice communion. And if we're not a believer, if someone's not a believer and they're looking at communion, just remember that Christ is represented here as dying for sin, so that if you will believe in Him, you can have the forgiveness of sins. If you're not a believer, it should take, cause you to take hold of God's grace and mercy and hold it tight, because you recognize the great cost of sin and the great love that Christ had for you, that He would shed His blood for the forgiveness of that sin. But of course, the greatest blessing today as Christians that we have through Christ is the hope of heaven. 
and the forgiveness of sins. This is really what it means to have the fullness of life in Him. To have that eternal life. The forgiveness of sins and God's grace with us every day. So I'm going to leave you as we close just with one last Scripture passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. Paul says this, But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Really, that's the idea of communion. It's not, you know, uh, minutiae about the practice and the distribution and other things like that. If we have the true theological basis of it, it's a joyous occasion for us, really. This is the truth of it, that Christ has given us peace with God through Himself. And so let's go ahead and pray as we remember that fact. Father, we thank You for communion. We thank You for this institution. Lord, You've given Your church two major sacraments, the baptism and communion. And we ask, Lord, that during this time, we would simply remember what You did for us and the power in which we can accept it and benefit from it through Your grace and mercy. I pray that we would cling to You freely, that we would give thanks for the goodness that You've um, imparted to us, and that, Lord, no matter where we are, we can approach You for forgiveness of sins. And I pray for anyone here listening that's not forgiven of their sins, who has not confessed Christ, who cannot call themselves a Christian in any good faith, that, Lord, they would simply come to You with open arms and embrace Your forgiveness and Your grace, that they would say, Lord Jesus, You are my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I confess Your death and Your resurrection. And, Lord we confess Your death and Your resurrection. And as we remember Your death and Your resurrection, I ask that we, it would be very near to us and dear to us, that we would not think of Christ with anything else but simply pure affection, and that Christ would be crucified among us in great uh, power, that we would recognize His crucifixion for the power that's in it. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.